Hi, Nina. Hi, Emma. How's tricks? Not too bad. Not too bad. How are you? Not too bad. I've had a day, a long day, so a that's long good. day with many people. Oh, so many people. So many books is the problem. It's not so much the people; it's the books. Yeah. Um, there's so many of them, and people keep publishing new ones. <laughs> they should just stop. They should at yeah. least stop until I've published another one because I feel like I'm falling behind. So actually, <laughs> if the whole publishing world could grind to a halt until I get my shit together, I would yeah. appreciate it. That seems fair. I think that, yeah. that would that's an extremely good start timeline. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that that's unreasonable. No, I think that's fine. But I've got a large glass of wine, so I'm pretty happy about that. That's good. I've got a nice cup of tea. Uh, so it's not right. quite as good, but it will no. do in a it's pinch. It's very nice. It'll do in a pinch. Yeah. I don't drink tea, so this glass of wine will have to mm. fill in. It's too late for coffee. It's definitely too late for coffee. Yeah, I don't want to be up all night. Like I'm an old person now. I have to go to bed at 11 or else I die. Yeah. Like I mean, turn into a pumpkin. 11 feels very late for me. <laughs> That's like the latest it can possibly be. Like, <laughs> like a night I've been out to some sort of lavish party I go to bed yeah. at 11. Yeah. <laughs> Having left at 10.30. Exactly. Yeah. Or preferably uh, 8. <laughs> I arrived at 7.30. I left at 8. <laughs> it was a great this night. very lavish. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds ideal, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, and then uh, nice glass one home, go to bed, perfect. It's ideal. It's how you live. Yeah, uh, that's my ideal life. Um, what do we anyway, do on this here podcast we're uh, doing? On this here podcast, the other thing that we do when we are sitting around at home not being at parties. <laughs> so this week we're answering a question from Christopher Leach, who wrote us a very nice review of the podcast. And he asked us, about the history of albinism and um, albinos and whether there were any notable people with albinism in history. And that question kind of scared me because this was something that I didn't know anything about at all uh, and I was going in pretty blind. But I had a really good time reviewing it. Our third co-host, my cat Livia, has just come to say hi. But so for those of you who don't know, albinism is genetic um, mutation where the person doesn't create any melanin, which means they don't create any skin pigment. So they usually have very, very white skin, very, very white hair all over their body and quite often uh, colourless eyes. So grey eyes or sometimes red eyes. And what that means is that they are completely unprotected from the sun, basically. So melanin protects you from uh, sun damage and they are completely unprotected. So that means that they have very, very sensitive skin and also particularly have eye problems. So they can be photophobic, which means that they're almost blind in bright light Mm -hmm. and that often their vision will deteriorate over time. But other than that... There was um there was an albino librarian at school at my school when I was a kid. She was great. She was very very shy and she was very very quiet. And because she had such serious eye problems, she literally had to put her face right up onto the covers of books to yeah. read what was on them. And which meant obviously checking things out in back in was a process. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but she was oh, so okay. it was she was so delightful that it was worth the the extra time anyway. She was yeah, very and- good. You know, eye problems aren't so bad. It can be quite debilitating for some people, but mm. for, the, for the most part, I think it is. It's, it, 
like eye problems that can be dealt with these days if you live in the West. So it occurs in about one in 17,000 people generally, but is very common in certain ethnic groups, particularly in parts of sub-Saharan Africa um, and in certain Aboriginal American nations. So the Kuna and the Hopi and the Zuni and places in Tanzania and quite often in places where there are, um, where there have been, they've been very endogamous, shall we call it. They marry amongst themselves and don't Mm. marry outside of their own group because obviously their genes just kind of go round and round and round. (laughs) For a large part of history, where we are talking about Western written history, really, they only appear when we are talking about Europeans coming into contact with people with albinism from non-European races because people, white people with albinism are unusual. It's kind of, it's less common, but also they're kind of less noticeable. Mm -hmm. They're just a white person with white hair and grey eyes which is less notable apparently to people than a black person with white hair and white skin and Mm -hmm. white eyes. Um, And so what we get is them being commented on in many different ways throughout history by white people coming across uh, African people, American Indian people, South American people, people from Japan all over the world uh, who have albinism and being baffled by them basically (laughs) (laughs) which comes into some interesting things so it's they're used for lots of different interesting generally quite horrifying arguments about all of our favorite things basically colonial people could turn anything they discovered into a horrific argument it's Um, because they only did horrific arguments but it's true it's very very true but there is there is a quite an interesting an interesting history of them. So, yeah, in terms of terminology wise, from what I can gather from my reading is that the term albino is not preferred as a general rule because it is quite reductive. Mm-hmm. It reduces the person to just their you know this genetic mutation basically, rather than being a person with albinism. So I'm going to go for persons with albinism. Yeah. Because also, as we will see later when we get to the 20th century, there's a, I found a whole Wikipedia page that was basically evil albinos in fiction. There are so many. (laughs) It turns out that the evil albino thing is much more than just Dan Brown. Yeah, it's, it's really present, which I guess shouldn't be surprising because that's a common thing across all sorts of, genetic conditions that that produce a physical and very visible abnormality it goes along with um you know there's evil hunchbacks and there's evil yeah dwarves and there's like that is really really common because apparently we as a you know a species are terrified of things that we that are different and that we don't know the reason for and so we do lots of horrible things to people who we don't understand yeah. And it is Exactly. So yeah, I don't I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that this is true of albinism <laughs> as well. There is also a list of fictional uh, neutral people with albinism and positively portrayed people with albinism, but they're shorter. It's considerably <laughs> shorter than Considerably shorter. And as a general rule, they're just like it's a person with albinism and they're just a character rather than they're a murderer because they yeah. have albinism. <laughs> yeah. 
or that their albinism is in somehow it's like frightening mm. and talking of fictional people with albinism um I did say I would talk about the albino in, which is the character name in Princess Bride. And then today, yes. William Goldman died. Um, he did. So, so uh, maybe you cursed him. Uh, maybe I did. I'm very sad about it. William Goldman was amazing. He was great. And even though this is an example of that, well, he's, I, I don't know if he's evil so much as he just happens to be on team evil because it's a job, <laughs> you know. You take you take That's a job true. where you find it. I'll be honest, like the other side, I guess, in The Princess Bride is not offering much in the way of employment opportunities. Yeah, and half of the heroes start out at the very least as antagonists. So Yeah, that's yeah. true, and then they switch sides. But yeah, I have I have always loved uh, that character in The Princess Bride. That is one of my classic gags, is the, the pit of despair. <coughs> <coughs> Don't even think about trying to escape. <laughs> it's very good. Good old, good old Mel Smith. He's a, <laughs> what, a, what a dude. What a dude. <laughs> yeah, interestingly, a lot of the like evil albino, albino people um, characters are played by people who do not have albinism. Yeah. A lo- much larger number of the neutral and positive ones were played by actual people with albinism. <laughs> Funny that. Odd that, right. <laughs> yes, so the earliest references that we have to people with albinism being mentioned are in the way that we're going to come to be very used to seeing them, which is people in Western Europe hearing about or discovering people from Africa with albinism. And the earliest ones we have are Roman and Ptolemy of Nicaea, who is a kind of Greco-Roman, and then Pliny the Elder, and then citing, well, basically straight up copying Pliny the Elder, Aulus Gellus, who will write kind of natural histories of the world, of interesting things in the world, basically, mention what they call white Ethiopians, where they use the term Ethiopia to refer to all of Africa below about Tunisia. Um, if it's not got a Mediterranean coastline, then it's considered to be Ethiopia <laughs> as far as the Romans are concerned. So all, everything from Tunisia down is is Ethiopia. And they think that they're a, a race, um, what they call Luke Ethiopes, what, just white Ethiopians, who who they think come from a place called Albania. Albania, like, albino obviously comes from albus, which is the Latin for white, Albania being a white place, (laughs) land of white. Um, And Albania, like, actual Albania as we know it, does not exist. So they're not talking about the Albania, like, in the Balkans or whatever it is. They're talking about an imaginary place called Albania, which is a land of white people. Sure. And they are. But he's describing people with albinism because he talks about them having white hair and white skin and grey eyes and who see better at night than at day. So it kind of describes it as them having night vision, but it seems that he's referring to the fact that a lot of people with albinism do see better at night because the light isn't as bright. So... He, but he refers to them as a race of people, which from this mythical Albania. Mm-hmm. And he refers to them, he talks about them, Pliny this is, talks about them in this kind of way that you might talk about centaurs. <laughs> sure. Which he also considers to be perfectly real and credible and kind of amazing. But mm-hmm. he considers the idea of, a, of, a, of an Albanian 
in inverted commas of this kind of white person with grey eyes in Africa to be more believable than a black African <laughs> because he kind of understands mm-hmm. like the idea of white people with white hair but he doesn't really understand the idea of an actual black African person sure having never yeah sweet summer child (laughs) yeah so he will have met people from North Africa but he probably like the furthest down he won't have even really met people from the Sudan or anything so Mm -mm. he's not they've not got very far and yeah he considers them that to be a mildly ludicrous idea so people with albinism are less of a ludicrous idea than that (laughs) But because Pliny and Aulus Gellus and Ptolemy were so kind of continued to be popular all throughout the Middle Ages, when we get to the 15th, 16th century, when Europeans start coming into contact with the Americas and the Indies and, and Africa for the first time again, and they see... Uh, people with albinism there they think that they are initially think that they are representatives of this albanian race (laughs) right and so they're kind of fine with it for a little while but it's when they start finding them all over the place and start seeing the kind of the fact that two black parents Mm -hmm. or can have an albino child or that you know two parents without any kind of um white hair white skin can have uh, an albino child then that starts to weird them out that's when it starts to get a bit odd yeah and then in 1519 and the kind of era the cortez expedition goes to south america um, mm-hmm. and starts trampling about and they find in montezuma's palace that there are these kind of that montezuma has basically got together a, a kind of freak show <laughs> of like that he keeps in his palace he just keeps like hunchbacks and dwarves and people with unusual like physical abnormalities uh, around in like little houses and they're just in the palace sure just just like the artwork great yeah what a great use of human people (laughs) it's unclear why he kept them around (laughs) but he did and so uh cortez and his lieutenant benel diaz describe these people that are in montezuma's palace and one of the people that they describe are people with albinism he says In one room of this palace, he kept men, women and children who had been white since their birth, face, body, hair, eyebrows and eyelashes included. And then basically Spanish explorers are finding people in South and Central America who have albinism or have relatively high incidences of albinism, like the Tulacuna people in Panama, who have a relatively high. Yeah. And they kind of think that they're quite fascinating. Yeah, the Kuna people... There is a lot of mythology and folklore around albinism and the Kuna people are one of the only ones that it's kind of nice. Oh, really? Like, yeah. They um, they believe that people with albinism are physically inferior, but they also believe they're closer to God and have powers that they can use. They believe that when an eclipse happens, a demon is eating either the sun or the moon and that or people with albinism have the power to scare that demon away and, and bring oh. back the sun or the moon, which is like, you know, obviously it's still... <laughs> No, it's weird not, to you know it's not it's not great to to have any kind of supposition about anyone suffering <laughs> or who has a condition like this but when you think about some of the other myths that there are about people with albinism this is quite a nice one 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could not, be worse, I guess. Not bad. I mean, there are definitely worse ones, particularly in some countries in Africa where yeah. um, there's a lot of nasty ones. Yeah, so the earliest, I mean, I suspect that the kind of myths and beliefs that the native people that they were coming across didn't really help the Europeans approach to this because they saw them being treated as odd, mm. which helps them stand out even more than yeah. a person like a, an African with albinism or a South American person with albinism already does. And so they wrote lots of things. Obviously, they wrote reports about what they were finding and they would include this within those reports. But they were always very careful to stress that this wasn't a specific race of people that they were finding, that this was some kind of of unusual thing mm. within the populations of the people they were meeting. It's not like they were being great about the people that they were meeting because obviously they were killing them all. Yeah. But they were like kind of proto-scientific way. They were doing their best to say this, you know, this is an oddity that we are finding in the new world, but this isn't a new race of people. It's when they start kidnapping people with albinism from Africa around about the time they start kidnapping lots of people from Africa and selling them into slavery they started kidnapping people with Africa from Africa uh, with albinism from Africa and taking them to Europe to display them that things start to become really weird mm-hmm. so they started bringing people with albinism from their communities and took them to Europe and started displaying them as freaks basically and then they started to be this idea that these people that were being you know held captive and displayed as though they were some kind of object were representative not of a obviously they didn't know it could be a genetic mutation but not of some kind of unusual occurrence but as Uh, representatives of an entire race of white Africans. And it's this that we start to get what is actually a really kind of interesting, and when I say interesting, (laughs) I mean terrible. Horrifying. Uh, I mean, obviously horrifying. I think that can go as like basic, but it's pretty, it is like, it's interesting in the way that people tried to shape the world that they wanted to see as much as anything. So they used... It was used first as an example of the idea that there was some kind of primitive whiteness that black people had degenerated from. Mm-hmm. And so there is this notion, and so this this emerges first in French scholarship in 1744, when a guy called Malpertius puts through this idea of, of what's called monogenesis, and is the idea that all races come from the same origin so adam and eve effectively mm-hmm. they were all created by the same god all created at the same time and that black people with albinism were evidence of this basically because yeah. these people were proof that there could be black bodies with white skin essentially mm-hmm. like black characteristics with white skin yeah um, and therefore it must be i mean the logical leap is enormous <laughs> <laughs> like so enormous <laughs> that you feel like they had the conclusion and were working backwards yeah absolutely i mean yes they definitely were that's i mean yeah yeah and interestingly there were long and public and quite violent like arguments between Malpertius and Voltaire 
about this because Bolter whenever there is just something else here like just <laughs> i know chill out <laughs> Volta here doing himself absolutely no favours and looking if it I mean no one's coming out great but no so they would have arguments about it. so Volta was not a believer in monogenesis he believed in kind of multigenesis the idea that each race descended from a different point of creation and therefore were fundamentally different as in they were literally different species sure which is the argument that was pretty much used to defend slavery. Of course. Uh, so go, go you go Voltaire. What a dude. What a fucking yes. dude. So they would get into very long arguments. So there was a, a man with albinism that they had taken from somewhere in Africa and were displaying in France. And Voltaire argued that Africans were a different species from Europeans and that you um, Africans with albinism were literally a different species of human altogether. And honestly, I feel I don't even particularly want to read out the quote from Voltaire because it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. <laughs> so he described this, this poor man as a little animal, white like milk, called a man because he has the gift of speech, of memory, a little of what is called reason and a kind of face. <laughs> Just like, what are you talking about, Voltaire? <laughs> yeah, like, it's horrible. And this is the kind of thing that was considered to be high, like the highest level of scientific and philosophical debate. Yeah. In the 18th, mid 18th century, 1744, 1745, this is. Mm-hmm. So, this is the highest level of, of debate. Yeah. This, and this, this is, is Europe's great thinker, Voltaire. Yeah, this is. These are the great, you know, the genuinely great thinkers of the European Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And this is what I was saying the other week when I was saying about, you know, they created these myths in order to justify the world around them. <laughs> and this is what they did. They argued about what they wanted the world to be more than anything. Yeah. And they were missing that they didn't really know genetics and have genetics at this time, but still they were not doing great. Mm-hmm. And at the other end of the high level thinking were the theological arguments, because this is the science arguments. This is the arguments mm-hmm. that are not coming from theology. These are the, like, there was an origin point for different races yeah. arguments. The theological argument was that African people with albinism were proof that black skin was not related to the sun. So they did get that as you went further south it got hotter and Mm -hmm. that skin got darker so they got that like on a base level but they didn't like it very much because they would much rather this had some kind of moral Mm -hmm. reasoning behind it so they were used to prove that dark skin had nothing to do with the sun but was in fact because there were white people in africa so if there is this imagined race of white africans yeah then that proves that living and being born in Africa and being an African has nothing to do with the colour of your skin. What it is, is that blackness is an intrinsic thing because black people are descended from the son of Mo- uh, son of Noah, Ham. Yeah. And the curse of Ham is the theological argument for slavery, that 
so the story goes, in case you don't, for anyone who doesn't know it, that on the ark with Noah and his sons, two of Noah's sons trick their younger brother, Ham, into seeing their dad naked. He's drunken naked as well. So they kind of trick him into being in their dad's bedroom when his dad comes in drunk and takes off all his clothes. And no, this is such an appalling thing that Noah gets mad at Ham, mm-hmm. even though really, you know, it just like, wasn't his fault. He didn't ask to see his dad's willy. <laughs> it was an um, accident. No one, it was an accident. He does, so he punish, but he punishes Ham. Um, and he sells Ham, he sells, he gives Ham in as a slave to his brothers. And then the because they're supposed to be the last people, like the last people on earth after the flood, and everybody is supposed to therefore be descended from, the, um, the theology went, or the theological argument went that people who were born to be in slavery were descended from Ham because he was cursed by Noah. And therefore they were literally an inferior, like a a people who were descended from a slave and therefore supposed to be in slavery. And that was a theological argument. And there was a very clear use of this imagined white race, white Africans that came from literally being able to see one or two who were kidnapped and turned into this whole argument as to why slavery was therefore cool. Yeah, I mean, we're very good at justifying why slavery is great and good and cool, I think, historically. Yes, it's particularly at this time. Yeah. They, um, there's like this point, because the interesting, I mean, again, I'm saying interesting, uh, <laughs> like the thing about ancient slave societies, so Greeks and Romans and the, like, even if you read the Bible and, and biblical Hebrew stuff, is that they never tried to justify it. They just was yeah. like that. If you lost, you became a slave. Like, yeah, that's, that's just it. They, they did, but generally believe that people who were born into slavery were inferior, but it wasn't a, a race situation. It was just that they were born in slavery. Like that was it. <laughs> yeah. And if you, if you lost a war, then this, that's what you got. And, and if it you didn't... pissed off your brothers, you got sold into slavery also. Yeah, if you pissed off your, if you saw your dad's willy, you also got into slavery. <laughs> but in this period, and then later when you get into 19th century plantation slavery in the South of America, mm. like that's the one other time which is considered to be a true slave society, like a society yeah. that is. So you Slaves. have like ancient societies and then like Greece and Rome. And then you have like plantation, the southern states of America, those plantation periods where, where the society rests economically and socially mm. and culturally on a foundation of slavery. And it cannot yeah. exist without it, basically. Yeah. And so therefore it reinforces the presupposition that slavery is morally correct and the people who are enslaved morally are supposed to be and therefore... It's justifiable yeah. that your whole society relies on them. Yeah, but because at this point in the kind of 17th, 18th century, they were building that, basically. They are laying the foundations mm. for it and justifying to themselves why it's okay for them to not see these people as people. They build these arguments and it turns out that people with albinism are surprisingly central to those arguments and they mm-hmm. are used as a as a marker of a lot of different ways of arguing that it was okay yeah <laughs> and a lot of different kind of philosophical approaches that can build out of africans with albinism which is kind of scary that they can take what it, it is not you know it's not like it's enormously common it is 
maybe it's about one in 17,000 people. Yeah. In some communities, it's slightly higher. It can be like one in two or 300 people, which is, you know, that is quite high, but it's not like so high that anyone's falling over, you know, it's not a majority. Mm. <laughs> so yes, it's, it's almost impressive the way that they were able to to spin out arguments from from so little really yeah completely and how they were able to kind of to make those people invisible uh, and make it all about themselves <laughs> yeah it's fascinating it, and it's like again it's one of those things that's not surprising you come across that tendency all the time it's never any less dep- depressing mm. uh, yeah it is yeah, so so that was fun. So for a long time, that is, and again, you'll like you'll note that in all of this, like European albinism is invisible, essentially, Mm-mm. which it, it is. I just I couldn't really find any until we got to the twentieth century. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I found a couple of again not European. The only I only found a couple of historical accounts of specific people at mm-hmm. all before we get to all the horrible modern stuff that we've got to talk about as well. <laughs> Let's talk about some ancient people. So there's an emperor of Japan called Emperor Sinai who was emperor for four years from 480 to 484. Mm-hmm. And he has been described as having white hair since birth. Nothing much exciting about him. You know, he was an emperor for a few years. Um, he he <laughs> had to fight his brother for the throne and won. And then, yeah, succeeded his father. Yeah, that's basically all, all I've got about him. That Like he just, he ruled for a while. And then, and then well, he didn't. Okay. I mean, he didn't seem like he did anything too terrible. So, yeah, no. The other one that I found is Zal, who was Persian, and he was an Iranian king. And he, this is one that is difficult to tell what extent is true, and some of it is definitely legend because he he was said to have been again born with white hair, uh, which his parents blamed on an evil spirit. And because of that, he was abandoned. He was rejected reject, by his father and abandoned on a mountain, um, on the mm-hmm. Alboz mountain, which is the highest peak in Iran. Uh, but he was saved by uh, a mythical bird called the Simurgh? Simurgh? <laughs> yep. Which is a, a benevolent bird uh, from Iranian mythology. Kind of kind of like the phoenix a little bit. Not, you know, not exactly the same. Who she rescued rescued Zal as a baby and took him to, as her nest and he grew up there and passing people would see this this bright silver-haired young man living in a bird's nest and after <laughs> the rumors reached his father um he he went to the place he was told as being and, and saw his son but he couldn't find his way up to he tried to climb up to him but he couldn't um so he prayed asking for forgiveness and the bird recognized that he'd come back, come back for his son and let him go, uh, but gave Zal a plume of feathers saying, burn this if you never need me, and let him go off into his life. Okay, I mean, you've said it's difficult to tell whether this is true The bird is definitely not true. <laughs> um, I'm just checking, just checking. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we know how you feel about my prize, so... Yeah, then he went, he went back and became like a great warrior. Well, there you go. Yeah. So apart from the bird thing. 
Apart from the bird thing, it may be, you know, there may be a grain of truth in that one. Don't don't know. Can't I don't want to knock it. Like, we don't know that. I mean, I'm pretty sure that there aren't big birds that talk to people and keep them in their nests. But yeah, you never know. <laughs> I suppose people really, really believed in phoenixes. So what do I know? Uh, I mean, they're wrong, obviously. The phoenix <laughs> never existed. But... Which is a shame. I would like one. I would like one for a pit. It would be bad. Really, I feel like it would probably set fire to the curtains. Oh, that's true. You'd need you'd need a big enough yeah. place for it. Yeah. It save a fortune on heating bills in winter. We, I mean, you would have to hope that it would explode regularly, though. I don't know how. Like, is it every couple of years? Is it every month? Like, in Harry yeah. Potter, it seems to happen fairly regularly. But I don't know if that's just a dramatic device. Yeah, I don't think that has any bearing on what real phoenixes would do in real life. There's a phoenix in Tacitus, in Tacitus, Tacitus's Animals, where he says that a phoenix was seen um, and that they're very rare, which is true. Because <laughs> they're imaginary. Uh, <laughs> but I always like that because, again, Tacitus is very considered to be very, very sensible. Then all of a sudden he'll chuck out a phoenix. <laughs> But anyway, people with albinism are real. Phoenix is not real. No. But yeah, so there does seem that, I mean, again, this is because, you know, Europeans have power and they don't write down that much about what they're finding, except to describe people as not being really people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they, they kind of erase the humanity of much as they think that they're like men they erase the the humanity and certainly erase the individuals that they find they are just almost disappeared but there were what then happened is that as kind of those arguments around race kind of merged into the background and new things emerged from in the, the great thinkers of the time is that by the 19th century people with albinism had become spectacles basically um had become a spectacle to look at and to be marveled at really like this is the most this is a spectacular thing that we can see and look at and you start finding them in freak shows basically Mm -hmm. also this is what happens to a lot of so I found a book called The White African-American, which is about um, African-Americans with albinism in American mm-hmm. culture. And this is what happens to a lot of African-Americans with who So people who whose you know, ancestors had been taken to America and who are now African-American. Mm-hmm. And they became like often the only way that they could find life or work was to be part of freak shows. Yeah. And you found them relatively often. The white African-American book was a really interesting one, actually, as a kind of chronicle of the lives and uh, experiences of of people who are... Because there's an interesting thing in terms of kind of identity, in terms of being a a person who is seen as African-American and as being kind of black, Mm -hmm. but having white skin. And what what he says in that book is that it was the dark skin that they said which marked the African body as being something worth displaying and that caused the stripping of citizenship and humanity. Yeah. That they say that it is because of the dark skin. And so logically, having white skin should restore humanity and restore citizenship and be... But it doesn't. Yeah. 
it just makes you makes them another different basically mm. which is i mean don't not that you need to undermine the logic of racism <laughs> but <laughs> no it, the, the logic of, of racism is just it undermines itself very neatly yeah it does and it is not you know charles d martin that book it isn't it isn't a logical thing much as they yeah. like to pretend that it is yeah and it is these sorts of outlier instances um what outlier is probably the wrong word, but rare a rare condition that proves yeah. how illogical it is. It like that if if there was any hope of of justifying that argument, which there isn't, it's not justifiable. But the way that African Americans with albinism were treated is categorically undoes it. Like yeah, it does, and it and they kind of have this liminal space between black and white basically mm. where they are mm, he includes people with vitiligo which is obviously a different thing and so he does have a chapter on michael jackson and things but he mm. considers them to be basically a, a liminal space which are kind of eternally fascinating at the, at the same time outside of yeah kind of normal categorization yeah in the way that america has categorized race they were have been they've been put outside of it and so he has a, a chapter called the double bind of the albino which where he talks about how they are ostracized they are considered to be black to a certain extent by the fact that they are not white yeah, and in the way that American race categories are black, white, other, um, they are put in the black category, but they are not considered to be black by other black people because mm. they have white skin. And so I'm not going to quote because it's like uses 19th century language, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is a very interesting thing. And so he has, so he talks about kind of various. People like um, P.T. Barnum did not have any albino people. He had a couple of people with vitiligo. Mm-hmm. Um, he had one called Piebald, who was the leopard boy, which is nice. Sure, great. What a Again, <laughs> P.T. Barnum. Yeah. Hope you all enjoyed The Greatest Showman Kids. It was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, sure. Um, <laughs> kids love that thing, though. Like, Yeah, I know. Like, they really are kind of obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah. Very sorry to tell everyone that was not an accurate portrayal of that situation yeah. at all. I don't know that that children care. That's probably Like, true. my nephews are absolutely obsessed with it. Like, they won't stop watching it. If I, whenever I go home to see my nephews, they come and they show me videos of it. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you, kids. I mean, it looks like a lot of fun, I guess, yeah. but I'm not sure that P.T. Bonham was A, as handsome or B, as delightfully charming. No, um, I, I don't think so. Although I think we've gone off, what's his name? Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman now. Because isn't he friend with the Trumps? What? I believe so. I think he's friends with Ivanka Trump. That's deeply you know. upsetting. So, Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Australians, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Terrible, terrible people. Yes. So anyway, back to this. There was a time when P.T. Barnum did claim to have an albino family, but they were just Danish people. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and they were just pretending. Just just for fun, just for a nice trick. I think that they wore wigs, possibly, but they were, yeah. 
They basically were presented as African, born of perfectly black parents in capital letters. Mm-hmm. They were called Rudolf and Antiana. And basically they were, yeah, they were, had this kind of whole story about how they were kidnapped and that they were saved by white merchants who rescued them from terrible African people to, in order to put them onto display. But they are, there's a picture of them and they are very clearly... <laughs> White just white people. <laughs> They're just white people with curly hair. <laughs> but they were, you know, that's how kind of fascinated they were by, particularly in America, by this idea. Mm. Yeah, so really, really wanted to get in between. Uh, wanted to wanted to have this kind of idea of, of a foreign person that is so amazing. And yeah, I totally recommend the book as a as a read. It's a bit academic, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to pretend that it's some kind of super exciting read, but mm-hmm. um, but it is a very interesting read about how they are, they were turned into freaks, basically. Yeah. And you get to see this in probably my favourite story about albino people, people with albinism, mm-hmm. which is. The story of Tom Jack, who caused, who was enormously famous in his time and caused an absolute riot in Iceland. (laughs) Um, Because, so this is jumping ahead a bit. This is the 1930s. And one day, a, in the 1930s, a poster was put up in Iceland. And this comes from... So I found it in an article about uh, the despectacularization of the albinotic body. And so you can tell that it's a pretty thrilling article. But um, <laughs> it linked to a thing called the Reykjavik grapevine, which appears to be, I don't know, a book, a magazine about Iceland. <laughs> I think it's like one of those, you know, like nice local ones that you get. Yeah. And it mostly yeah. seems to be about how great Iceland is, which seems fair. Sure. But it has this great little story titled The Invasion of the Ice Family. That time a group of albinos drove Icelanders crazy. (laughs) And that's the actual title. And then it has these pictures of these people with like (laughs) crosses through them, a little devil horn thrown on them. (laughs) Like that's how they've decorated it. So obviously it's great. So uh, it's 1934 Mm -hmm. and basically people would get their news from news clippings and things like being posted outside of the newspaper offices basically to see photographs and they got this um, news from an Austrian newspaper that a group of people a family of six had appeared in Vienna by making a big fun thing as presenting themselves as the last survivors of an ice race from Iceland (laughs) sure Not- notable, fantastical Iceland that is yes, made uh, notably ice. fantastically Iceland, uh, a place that they're effectively claiming does not exist, <laughs> and they claimed to be six members of this lost race, the last people of the ice race of people, the last people you- from Iceland. <laughs> Yes, and you could tell that they were the last people from Iceland because they had extremely white hair and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) And they were... So the father of the family is a guy called Tom Jack whose real name was Carl Brew 
and he was from the Czech Republic and he genuinely did have albinism, like Mm -hmm. completely white hair, completely white skin, grey eyes, all of it. And he had spent his life being a escape artist and magician and he had a great time doing that. He was kind of started as a clown and then became a, a escape artist and he was just absolutely in love with Houdini. He has got and a very good look for a magician. That cla- like his hair is enormous. His hair is enormous. <laughs> like really, really enormous. So big. Yeah. But he so he that was his kind of thing. But he was also a really good escape artist and he caused kind of he would go around and do things like Houdini did. At one point he was thrown off of Tower Bridge into the Thames mm-hmm. and was and nearly died because he failed to escape. But he would do things like that, you know, he would go around and make a big show of doing this escape artist stuff. But then when escape artistry kind of started to tail off a little bit, mm-hmm. he decided that he would go into freak shows. And so he had a wife and children who did not have albinism. So he just got some people and put black kind of white wigs on them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then went round declaring to himself that he was the last, he was the, well, he called himself the Ice King when he was an escape artist. Sure. And then he was calling himself the Ice Race. And this was, was a kind of a huge sensation in Austria and was a huge sensation kind of around certain parts of Europe. Like it was big in Amsterdam and stuff and they would go and people would go and look at them. But when the Icelanders found out about it, <laughs> they were so mad. <laughs> I can understand that. Look, we're not yeah. mythical. They were like, we're not, we're not mythical people with white hair. We're just like Danish people on an island. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you've just dismissed them as Danish people on an island. They may, they may also be annoyed about that. They might be a bit annoyed about that, but that's a more correct analysis <laughs> of Icelanders. Is, that is true. <laughs> than, than ice race people. Yeah, so uh, that drove people mad. But he was genuinely a very famous person with albinism. Mm. And then he kind of just pootled about the world and then he died in 1953. Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, that's a, it's a not bad life. It's not bad. He, he, no, it's he not. took the world by storm, made a lot of people very angry, accomplished some things. Yeah, he did. He was born in 1884, he died in 1953, he had a good old life. Mm. But yeah, so that was the life and times of... And yeah, and now they're still being talked about in Iceland as people as utterly infuriating. Yeah. Yeah, which is good fun. I think he might be... My favourite. and But I like the fact that albinism became such, like, there was such a demand for people with albinism to look at. Yeah. That they wanted, they had, like, Danish people. And, you know, I God knows who these people are that he got to dress up for his family. Like, <laughs> that is not recorded anywhere that you know I what? can they see. They were people that needed a check. They were people that needed a check. And he kind of dressed them up like, oh... Um, I'll put the photos on Twitter um, if somebody reminds me. <laughs> because basically they are just obviously wearing big fuzzy wigs and he's kind of put them in this vaguely ludicrous kind of coats. They all look like, they look like they're about to go into Eurovision and then take the coat off and there'll be something on our teeth. They're like really big coats yeah. with kind of embroidery on them. And they're all matching. It's kind of like a very Amdram Von Trapp family. It is a very Amdram Von Trapp family, yes. Yeah, I really like... Um, <laughs> there's a drawing 
of of him next to his wife in a block of ice perfect which i don't know what it's supposed to be representing but they're both smiling very widely is that because uh, people from iceland can just survive in the ice unclear <laughs> um the caption on it is the freezing arctic was obviously very different from the uh, sosenspieler act at oktoberfest <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so they've got Danish people in America. They've got, you know, this guy and his family of non-Albanotic people. And like, there's this obvious desire to see them. Like, yeah, the, the people... Like, it is a like, trainable skill a- being able to pass yourself off as having albinism. Yeah, like, if you've got nothing else to do, then you can do this. <laughs> and you can, it can be marketed in and of itself as something and it's not like people in freak shows did not particularly have an enormous amount of of power or agency but at least they were you know being admired for themselves and what you get then is when you get to christopher hall and matthias kring uh, wrote an article called extraordinarily white the despectacularization of the albinotic body and the normalization of its audience uh, in a book called beauty and the norm mm-hmm. which is about basically how People who used to be albino freaks, in inverted commas, became medicalized. So as the idea of moving away from freak moved it into the world of disorder. And so what they write is that the the once marvellous body began to be seen as an aberrant body. They stopped being marvellous and became pathological, something that needed to be medicalized and turned and and turned into something to be studied again and it's always about normal people looking at people with albinism yeah when normal there is a heavy inverted Mm -hmm. um but you know the the normal people being here now doctors and taking away any potential agency that might have come away from being marvelous yeah and turning it into an aberration um that can be that needs to be dealt with yeah and neither is better than the other particularly (laughs) and at least medicalization doesn't put you on a stage or put you in a cage no and it brings you a little bit closer to being widely understood as a a thing that happens and that is still part of normal humanity and i think that medicalization much as anything uh does at least like a lot of things are medicalized. Yeah. It it puts it in the box with you know everything else that is a genetic mutation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know with blindness or deafness or you know there can be a a, a, dis- a disability but can also be seen as um, an identity. Mm, yeah. So then we get to where we are now really where what I could mostly find these days is a lot of projects trying to talk about a lot of them have the word ghost in the title or the description so there is a UN Human Rights Commission project which is called Not Ghosts But Human Beings Great, I mean true Yeah, glad we we figured that one out Which you can't deny You can't deny it Yeah, which has Lots of stories from people with albinism Mm -hmm. and people who work within albinism. 
So people like Peter Ogik, who was the founder uh, of the Nile Union of Persons with Albinism. Sorry, source of the Nile Union of Peace Persons with Albinism. And there's an amazing one called Grace Mumbi Nagugi, mm-hmm. who is from Kenya and who is a judge of the High Court in Kenya. And she basically tells their stories and she's like, I was kicked out of school because I couldn't see properly Mm -hmm. and then nobody believed that I could be fixed in any way but then she founded the Albinism Foundation of East Africa and then she became a high court judge and yeah the yeah and kind of all these people and a lot of models and there is a lot of stuff around photography as a way to to get people used to looking at people with Albinism. There are some beautiful photo photo projects and photo essays that center around people with Albinism just even doing an, a Google image search, you get some incredible, incredible photos. Um, yes, I found a couple of, of really, particularly around Africa. So as mm-hmm. a French Senegalese photographer called Cora Porte, mm-hmm. who has done a lot of work, uh, an American woman called Jacqueline Martin in Tanzania. And yeah, they've done some really lovely work. Yeah. But particularly focused on, Jacqueline Martin's in particular is focused on, so in Tanzania they are, uh, people with albinism are, are ostracized and sometimes hunted yeah this is a this is some of the deeply unpleasant mythology that still seems to persist the idea that uh, the body parts of people with albinism can bring good luck when used in witchcraft and witch doctrine yes yeah or that they are you know like the jacqueline martin's work is called uh, the tribe of ghosts um and there is this kind of notion of them being ghosty in mm. some way there, yeah, there are quite a few places where they're not particularly safe. And so they have government safe houses called protectorates mm. where because sometimes they are abandoned by their parents. Mm-hmm. There is potential rumours, though no one's ever been able to prove it, that albino children with albinism are sometimes exposed. So yeah. left to die, basically. Yeah. And so, yeah, so there are places where there are basically what Jacqueline Wilson calls tribe, which is language that I'm not going to comment on but I would like to say mm-hmm. <laughs> actually no I am going to comment on it there is a way to talk about Africa without using the word tribe I'm there sure. is <laughs> um, which is I think a very loaded term yeah but but the community of of, of people with albinism mm. who who all live together yeah so it's I nice think, that the um, government is protecting them yeah but I think part of that protection does also maybe contribute to isolation true in some ways but I I suppose it's a uh, yeah. A balancing situation, like is how much do you need to protect them? Yeah, but uh, well, I think a lot <laughs> because yeah. there are cases of this. Um... No, I mean, like if you need, like you need to protect them a lot. Therefore, you need to keep them away. If you know what I mean, like you yeah, need to yeah, keep yeah. them behind walls because if you let them out, then there's gonna like something terrible could happen to them. Yeah, which isn't ideal, really. Yeah, because it is kind of like punishing people with albinism for the fact that they are the victims of some brutal crimes. Yes. And there is a lot of... And again, we don't often hear the voices of people with albinism, and so it's nice to see these these projects yeah, like the Human Rights Commission doing things like the Not Ghosts project because it gives them a place to have their voice said rather than the people 
because what we see often is like I found an article in from a South African paper from literally April this year mm-hmm. called It's About Time We Treat People with Albinism as Human Beings, Not Ghosts. Um, it is about time, you know? Um, <laughs> which is good, I guess. But again, is not written by an albino person. Yeah. Not written by a person with albinism. And they're, they're often treated like there are models, they are photographed, but they are not necessarily doing the photographing. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems that currently there are voices saying, like, we should treat people with albinism as people. Good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not necessarily coming from the voices of people with albinism yeah which suggests that we are not letting those voices through because i'm sure there are plenty of people talking about their own experiences Um, sure and again there are lots of things like the source of the nar union of persons with albinism which is set in uganda um there's the society of east africa there is uh, the albino foundation there are kind of various groups and things and they're all founded and run by people with albinism but yeah i hadn't heard of them until yeah until until i went looking actively searching yeah yeah which you know and i did so yeah they're obvious it is that they're not the voices that are being that are the dominant like not even the dominant but they're not even the dominant voices in albinism (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is a fun thing about the world we live in and when i say fun I mean it much in the same way as I mean interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As in maybe, maybe just appalling. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there we go. Hopefully. But, yeah, it very much remains a condition that we obviously need a whole lot more education about. Yes. Which is always yeah. horrifying. I think, you know, I tend to assume that most things like this, most medical conditions we understand now and are widely understood, but it's... It's not. Modernism it's very is often a myth, not the, cow, the case. Yeah. It is a myth. It's very depressing. This is why I hate it when people say it's 2018 and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, people are saying that in like 948. It's 948. And, and we're still doing this. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's just time is passing and we try and get better. Yeah. And try and treat every person as a person. Yeah, it shouldn't be hard treating people as people. Well, it's a philosophy, yeah. but we do our best with it. <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. That's the history of albinism as I could find it. In a nutshell. And a lot of it is about Europeans looking at it. Being cunts again. And then creating myths about themselves, about around it. Yeah. So there you go. Hopefully that answers Christopher's question. Hopefully it does. What what are we talking about next time? Next time I think we're probably going to alienate everybody. (laughs) Because I just feel... That, you know, I'm extremely keen on destigmatizing, but I also know that people are squicked out easily. So we're answering a question from Sophie Patterson, mm-hmm. who asked, what's the history of periods? Were they always considered gross? That is such a good question. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about. Love the natural about part of the female body yeah and i think i would say if you are a bit squicked out about that you should definitely listen yeah i think you should extra listen and then confront why it is that it squicks you out yes and we're going to talk about yeah so we're going to talk about like taboos and myths around it and uh, she also said did people use rags or were there more ingenious solutions which i currently don't know the answer to but i'm looking forward to finding out yeah it's gonna be very exciting yeah hopefully yeah that's all good if you have a question then you can send us it at on twitter at at 
sexy history pod mm-hmm. or you can email us at sexyhistorypod at gmail.com yes and thank you to everybody who did i finally went through and actually replied to all of those emails <laughs> this week so <laughs> we are bad at remembering all the platforms we should be checking we do but i do my best to every so often i remember them all i never do you're much better at it than me between me and oliver we get to them eventually <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh oh yes and the other one we have is facebook which is sexy history pod because facebook e. doesn't let you be sexy it doesn't let you be sexy it's anti-sexy mm. pro-fascism though so yeah well they're all pro-fascism <laughs> yeah and you can find me at at nuclear teeth and i'm at j9 and if and lovely oliver is at at kiwa yeah i think that's it oh leave us reviews and things that's nice we do, we do we like, like that a lot subscribe that's also nice listen to every episode multiple times so that we feel more popular Mm -hmm. and that's it Yeah. yeah yeah bye Janina bye